for a chemical made up of one part carbon, four parts hydrogen, is incredibly abundant on Earth, as it's formed by both geological and biological processes, the former when organic materials are heated up and have massive amounts of pressure applied to them underground, and the latter through a process called methanogenesis, which basically means certain types of archaea, a category of life, exhaling methane. That sort of respiration mostly occurs in organic breakdown situations where these microscopic organisms live. So landfills and in the bottom of lakes and bogs where dead stuff falls and is torn apart at a microscopic level by these tiny creatures. But it also happens in the guts of cows and termites and similar more macro scale beasties which rely upon their symbiosis with these archaea to help them process the stuff they eat, which they otherwise would not be able to break up and use on their own. Methane was originally discovered in the sense that it was noted and quantified back in the late 18th century when the Italian physicist and chemist Alessandro Volta, who among other things lent his name to an electrical measurement and who is credited with inventing the battery, who was studying at the time marsh gas, marshes being a huge natural source of methane as it's filled with the sorts of critters that break apart biological materials and then release methane as a byproduct. We have known about this gas for a while then, and history is filled with examples of different cultures making use of it in relatively simple ways as an energy source, even further back than that. And on that note, methane is the primary constituent of what we today call natural gas, though the name methane was only coined in 1866 by a German chemist, August Wilhelm von Hoffmann, who derived the term from methanol, which is the flammable, colorless liquid, often called wood alcohol, which is from whence the gas was first detected and isolated. And before that, different cultures referred to it only adjacently and secondarily, usually because it caused issues that they couldn't see or quantify, like for instance causing deaths in coal mines. The deadly gas pocket laden air underground causing all sorts of unknown undetectable issues until methane became an official thing. And until that point it was sometimes referred to as fire damp, which was a scary miasma-like entity almost that could suffocate everyone in a mine, or it could explode seemingly spontaneously. Today, methane, mostly as a constituent of natural gas, is harvested and shuttled all over the planet to be burned as a fossil fuel. And similar to other fossil fuels like oil and coal, that burning releases energy, producing heat, which is used to spin a turbine or heat water in a steam generator. Natural gas is, in the modern world, generally considered to be superior to most other fossil fuel options for most use cases because it burns relatively cleanly in terms of pollution compared to those other options, which is nice for folks in the areas where this burning is actually taking place, but it also releases relatively little CO2 into the atmosphere per unit of heat it produces when it's used for energy. So although it is still very much a fossil fuel and emits greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, it would seem to be the best of bad options in many ways, and can be stored and transported 
in forms that make it quite versatile and even more energy dense. It can be refined and pressurized into a liquid, for instance, which makes transport substantially easier and each unit of natural gas more useful. But that also allows it to be used as rocket fuel and for similar high-intensity utilities, which is not something that can be said of otherwise comparable options. What I'd like to talk about today is the role of methane in a world that is shifting toward renewable energy, and why this fossil fuel, which is generally superior to other fossil fuel options, is associated with some unique problems that we are scrambling to solve. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. Back in June of 2023, scientists announced they had discovered evidence of a massive methane plume in Kazakhstan. This plume, the consequence of a leak at a methane prospecting site in this methane-rich country, was later confirmed to be the result of an accident at one of a local energy company's wells at a gas field on June 9th. And the company said they were doing what they could to address the issue and that the purported continuing gas plume was actually just hot clouds of vapor containing minimal amounts of methane, a misidentification in other words. The scientists who flagged the plume, though, said this was not the case. The satellites they used to identify it contain high spectral resolution imaging hardware, and they do not tend to mistake water vapor for methane. That may have been possible with previous technologies used for this purpose, but these new ones are not prone to that type of false positive. These satellites noted at least nine individual instances of methane plumes erupting from this single site in the month leading up to July 23rd alone, and those findings were then confirmed by scientists using similar technologies with the SRON Netherlands Institute for Space Research, and that's alongside the original group's use of two different satellites, the EU's Sentinel-5P and the Italian space agency's PRISM satellite, the former of which used a spectrometer that was designed specifically to detect methane in this way. These researchers, using these findings, were able to estimate an emission rate of somewhere between 35 and 107 metric tons of methane leaked per hour into the atmosphere from this one leak alone, which has thus caused the same amount of short-term climate damage in terms of heat amplifying greenhouse effects as the annual emissions of somewhere between 814,000 and nearly 2.5 million U.S. cars, the worst confirmed methane leak from a single source in all of 2023, so far at least. And so far is doing a lot of work there, as these sorts of satellites have become increasingly effective tools in researchers' toolkits for identifying these types of leaks. And the software they use to crunch the raw data provided by these increasingly sophisticated detection tools has led to a minor revolution in the ability to both notice and pinpoint the source of methane plumes globally, even in areas where such plumes would have previously gone unnoted and thus unaddressed. And this is important 
if you're the sort of person who cares about the amplifying effects of human industry and other endeavors on climate change, because methane, in addition to its explosive volatility and capacity to degrade local air quality and mess with ecosystems at ground level, methane is thought to be responsible for about 30% of the total greenhouse effects we are seeing today because despite only sticking around in the atmosphere for about 7 to 12 years, which is quite a short time compared to potentially hundreds of years for CO2, methane is also about 80 times more potent than CO2 in this regard. So in the short term, which in this case means the around a decade a given methane particle persists in the atmosphere, it is way, way worse in terms of heat trapping compared to CO2. And though that effect will subside faster than CO2, which can stick around for many generations rather than just a decade or so, we are still churning a lot of methane up there. So this is not a one-off temporary thing where it will dissipate and go away. It is persistent. The methane that goes away is being replaced by more and more of the same. And those temporary impacts can have long-term repercussions either way, like melting ice caps, contributing to droughts and floods and extreme storms, and drying up areas that would periodically see irregular wildfires, in turn causing much larger and more potent fires instead, which in turn churns all the CO2 contained in those trees or peatlands or whatever else that are now burning into the atmosphere, rather than allowing it to stay contained within these CO2 sinks. So temporary boosts of this magnitude in greenhouse gas effects are not temporary. They can last far past the period in which the gases are actually up there, increasing the average heat because of how substantially and in practical terms permanently they change the physical circumstances on the planet below. All of which has led to waves of investment in being able to detect methane leaks because while many energy companies are increasingly incentivized to cap leaky wells, in part because doing so potentially gives them a source of natural gas that they can then turn around and sell as fuel. Despite that, some such entities are more than happy to allow these leaks to just keep leaking because the cost of identifying and handling leaks can in some cases be higher than what they expect to get from capturing and selling that gas. Or in some cases because the entities in question are beyond strict regulations that would necessitate they care or act to begin with. There are no consequences for this sort of atmospheric pollution in many parts of the world. The same is generally true even in more dense and ostensibly regulatorily rich areas like Russia, which is expected to churn by far more CO2 equivalents worth of methane into the atmosphere from leaks and gas burning than any other country. Though the US comes in second, followed by Qatar, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and China at a distant sixth. This is an issue in fairly remote and rural places like Kazakhstan then, where there's a lot of energy and mining infrastructure but not so many people, or regulatory bodies with teeth, but it's also an issue in places like the US, where methane gas leaks are estimated to pump something like 6.5 million metric tons of this gas into the atmosphere every single year, which is roughly the equivalent of the yearly emissions of about 2.5 million US passenger vehicles. There are means of addressing this issue, and they're generally referred to as methane abatements, a term that encompasses everything from plugging or tapping those methane leaks to changing what cattle are fed, cows emitting a lot of methane 
because of how they are bred and fed and kept and how their microbiota process what they eat. Fundamental to these abatement options, though, is figuring out where and how to apply them in the first place. Governments around the world are thus beginning to aggregate the data they have, providing local governance and businesses with the resources they need to start addressing this issue. But the rollout has been slow, in part because the resolution of our view has been quite low until just recently. We haven't been able to see things very clearly or minutely with any real detail. A trio of satellites, including the aforementioned Sentinel-5P, alongside the Sentinel-3 and Sentinel-2, the data they collectively generate paired with machine learning, a type of what we might broadly call artificial intelligence, has allowed researchers to produce a wealth of automatically generated data on this subject at a far more granular level than has been possible until just recently, which in turn has allowed governing bodies to parse that data and identify super emitters, the worst of the worst in terms of these types of leaks, while also providing more specific down to the individual well in an oil facility, or in some cases the specific location on a pipeline, where these leaks are occurring. These satellites can also provide estimates as to how much methane is being leaked at a given location, which in turn can help nations, organizations, and corporations prioritize their abatement efforts accordingly. We are still in the frontier stage of this sort of detection and amelioration, but there's more on the way, with satellites optimized for methane detection of this kind launching in the coming years. And one of them, the $90 million methane sat, is meant to help global regulators pinpoint hotspots and identify potential underreporting by various entities, which in turn should help put more pressure on those that are intentionally concealing their leaks, something that'll be especially important for holding companies like those in Russia, which are supported in this concealing by their government, to account for their chronically underreported methane emissions. These satellites and similar detection tools, though, are not of much use without efforts to act upon their findings at the ground level, just as all the good intentions in the world would not be enough to staunch the upward flow of this gas into the atmosphere, lacking the data required to tell us where to look and what needs to be done. What we're really looking at, then, is a moment in time, beginning in 2023, but really kicking into high gear, starting in 2024 and headed through 2030, which is when many countries' first-step big-deal climate commitments come due. We're looking at a moment in which a confluence of detection and remediation efforts and techniques is finally emerging, and this confluence could allow us to significantly reduce this category of greenhouse gas emissions, which is great, because up to 75% of methane emissions are thought to be solvable in this way. Such efforts, in turn, could reduce the rise in global temperatures from greenhouse gases by something like 25% all by itself. An incredible win if we can keep the momentum going and incentives aligned as these new resources begin to spin up and interoperate, which in turn will hopefully give the folks trying to solve this particular problem the tools they need to do so. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier by Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is a big booster for technology. He's one of the original editors and founders of Wired Magazine, among many other things. 
And he's got an interesting sort of philosophy on life that he shows through his work, but some of those philosophies and some of the wisdom he's collected over the years has been compiled into this relatively short little book that is full of various quotes and aphorisms that is aiming to very concisely share some of these understandings and some of the things that's worked well for him in an almost fortune cookie-like format and length. A lot of these aphorisms and wisdom is stuff you already kind of know, but having them shared in this way can make them more memorable. But then there's also a lot of interesting, neat little nuggets of wisdom that you may not have thought of or thought about in this particular way. Like for instance, quote, the chief prevention against getting old is to remain astonished, end quote. Bits and pieces like that may not resonate with you, or may not resonate with you right now, but some of them will probably be useful, and there's enough of them in this book that there's probably something that you'll take away and feel was worth the time invested. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Excellent Advice for a Living by Kevin Kelly. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes, and other such content, and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods, or at onesentencenews.com. And say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>